flames in the ditch. We're in the eighth of the pits. We're down in the Malabolcha of fraud. We are in the eighth circle of hell. And we are about to get introduced to one of the greatest sinners of hell who will bring the text to a dead halt. Hi, I'm Mark Scarborough. This is the podcast Walking with Dante. I may have just oversold it a bit, but I can't help it. I'm extremely excited for what we're about to encounter here down in lower hell. We've been here for a very long time through all kinds of pits of flatterers and simoniacs and fortune tellers and thieves and hypocrites, all all these pits of various fraudsters. But we ain't seen nothing like what we're about to see. This passage for this episode of the podcast, Wagutate, is actually Canto 26, lines 49 through 63. It's the introduction of Ulysses into the poem. But I want to back up, if I can, and I want to back up to line 34 of Canto 26 and kind of get a running start into the passage itself. Here we go. As the one who got his vengeance with the bears saw the chariot of Elijah take its departure, the horses lifting themselves erect on their way up into the heavens so that he could not follow them with his eyes, except he could see way up there a solitary flame like a little cloud rising up and up, just in such a way each flame itself moved along the maw of the ditch. Not a single one gave away its theft, even though each flame had a sinner inside it. I straightened up on the bridge to see better. Had I not grabbed hold of a rocky crag, I would have fallen in without being pushed. My guide saw how the pit grabbed my attention and said, The spirits are inside those fires. Each one is clothed with what's incinerating him. My master, I replied, hearing you say that makes me more certain, but I'd already considered that such was the case. So I already wanted to ask you, who's in that fire that arrives so split at the top, so much so that it seems to be rising from the pyre where Itiocles and his brother were laid down? He replied to me, There inside are tormented Ulysses and Diomedes. They're paired up in the vendetta that results from the wrath they incurred. Down inside that flame, they bewail the ploy of the horse that opened the gates from which issued the seed of the noble Romans. Caught inside, they lament their art, by which, even dead, Demaya still pours out her sorrow for Achilles. They also settle the score over the palladium they stole. We're going to break it right there at Virgil's explanation of who's inside the flame. We're going to break it here because the next is a conversation between Dante and Virgil before we get finally to Ulysses himself. The passage that we're dealing with starts with my master, I replied, hearing you say that makes me much more certain. This is going to be a longish episode because there is a ton of background here that Dante is collapsing into just a few lines. He has really, really 
relied on your knowing the full story. And I want to make sure that you actually know the full story of what's going on here and what Dante knows and doesn't know. If you want to check out this translation, it's on my website, markscarbro.com or walkingwithdante.com. They go to the same place. And you can even drop comments if you want to talk more about this episode. Let's get to it. The passage starts, my master, I replied, hearing you say that makes me more certain, but I had already considered that such was the case, so I already wanted to ask you who's in that fire that arrives so split at the top. Remember I told you last time that Virgil's comment that, you know, each fire is clothing someone inside of it only is telling us what we already know. And this passage seems to reiterate that, that the pilgrim is, do we want to say tweaking? That he's uh, uh, poking Virgil? It might be that far that he's basically saying to Virgil, look, <laughs> look, guy, I already know what's going on here. I just want to ask who's in that one. I get the case and the matter here. I get how these sinners are punished. I understand it completely that they're in these little tongues of fire, but I want to know who's in that one. We should comment right here on the pilgrim's eagerness. We saw it earlier in the passage. I read back up before this passage for this episode so that you'd see it, that bit where the pilgrim almost falls into the pit. And now this, the prodding, the saying, yeah, yeah, I get it, I get it, come on, but tell me who's in that one. There is so much eagerness going on here from the pilgrim Dante that we need to note it as his motivation. And given that we are in a Christian poem, we need to judge it. Believe it or not, we need to decide what this motivation is. It is clearly an eagerness to figure out who this is. In fact, we may even think, at least many commentators are led to believe, that Dante the Pilgrim already really knows who's inside this flame, that his eagerness is predicated on his advanced knowledge. I don't know that I can go that far. That's very common in commentary to say that. I don't know that I can go that far in this passage. It doesn't seem to me like he really knows who's inside that flame, but still, nonetheless, there has to be a way to account for his eagerness. If, in fact, it is a kind of, oh, I don't want to say, eagerness that almost brings about his own destruction. I mean, he almost falls into the pit. He almost stumbles forward if the rocks hadn't stopped him from going into the pit. What is it that he's so eager here? Well, one of the things that we can definitely say, and this is going to play out more in the drama ahead, is Dante seems eager to know what he can't. And that does seem to play out in what's ahead of us. There's an eagerness to learn, an eagerness to figure it out, an eagerness to step beyond the border of the bridge over the pit, an eagerness to figure out what he can't and doesn't know. And that eagerness is pushing him on, maybe to poke Virgil, but certainly in a kind of dramatic way to figure out who's inside this flame. So let's talk about the flame for a moment. He says, I wanted to ask you who's in that fire that arrives so split at the top. So this tongue seems to be divided. We should think of serpents here. We should think of divided tongues and what that means ethically, you know, speaking with a forked tongue. Dante wouldn't know that expression, but still, the, and nonetheless, he would know the idea about the divided tongue of serpents and serpents in the Garden of Eden. All of that would be playing behind the division of this tongue of fire. And then Dante the Pilgrim drops a classical reference. He says it's split so much so that it seems to be rising from the pyre where Eteocles and his brother were laid down. 
This is a story told in Statius's epic in the Thebiad in Book 12 at lines 429 and following. Statius relates this story, and it is kind of the founding myth of the Siege of Thebes. But it's not only there. You should also know that this comes out of Lucan in the Pharsalia in Book 1 at lines 551 and following. The same story is referenced. Here's the story. Ateocles and his brother Polynices were two Theban ruling class brothers, and they absolutely hated each other. Their enmity toward each other is, in fact, what caused the civil war in Thebes. And they so hated each other that at their mutual death, they were burned on the same pyre, and so the story goes, the smoke came up and actually fought each other (laughs) as they were rising up as smoke on the fire. Even the smoke tried to fight each other from each of the bodies as it rose up. But there's something even more interesting about that, and that is the Theban material. The Siege of Thebes and the story of Thebes and the epic of the fall of Thebes and its being assailed by various characters, even Capaneus, who we've already met, stretched out on the sands. This civil war in Thebes is becoming more and more prominent material in Lower Hell. I already mentioned Capaneus, who we saw stretched out with the blasphemers in the seventh circle of the violent, but you should know that material from the Siege of Thebes and material about the fall of Thebes is becoming increasingly prominent in Lower Hell. We've already passed Tiresias and Manto in the fortune tellers in the fourth of the evil pouches or of the Malabolja in hell. Those are characters out of the Siege of Thebes. We've already passed Cadmus. Remember, amongst the thieves, that's when Dante says, let Ovid be silent about Cadmus and his change. That Cadmus is a figure from the Siege of Thebes, and there are many more ahead of us. And we should stop and remark on this for a moment. There is no doubt that the fall of Thebes is becoming increasingly prominent in the poem. There are many references ahead of us. And there is a way in which Thebes and Florence are being subtly compared to each other. We're being constantly reminded of the civil war that brings the destruction of Thebes as a reference point to the political unrest in Florence. We should just note that these are secular disasters. And it may be that in Dante's mind, Thebes and Florence represent, to use old phraseology, the city of man, or how shall we say, the city of humanity, as opposed to the Augustinian city of God, where we're headed in Paradiso. It is curious that the references to Thebes and to Statius's poem about the Siege of Thebes become more pronounced in Lower Hell, where the condemnation of Florence becomes more pronounced. And here, in this passage, we have one of those references. Okay, let's pass on and meet the sinners themselves. Virgil replies... Their inside are tormented Ulysses and Diomedes. We should just stop and say that Dante does not know Homer. So if you're thinking Odysseus, 
of the Odyssey don't. Dante doesn't have any knowledge of Homer's poems directly. He knows about Homer's poems from many other sources, and he definitely knows who Ulysses and Diomedes are. There are any number, a ridiculous number of classical accounts about these figures that Dante would know. He knows it from Virgil's Aeneid. We'll talk about that in a second. He knows about Ulysses from Cicero, from Seneca, from Statius, from Lucan, from Horace, and even from a host of Neoplatonic Christian writers. We're going to discuss more about that at the end of the episode of this podcast. So while he may not know the story from Homer, he knows the reference points. For example, Circe, or the fall of Troy, or even here, the wooden horse in this passage. He knows the pieces of that story from many other places. And of course, Ulysses and Diomedes are characters in Virgil's The Aeneid. In book two, we have the occurrence of Ulysses and all of his treachery, all of his ways that he brought about the fall of Troy. And bringing about the fall of Troy causes him to be under, oh yes, there's that word, vendetta. It says they're paired up. I shouldn't say it says. Virgil says they're paired up in the vendetta that results from the wrath they incurred. Vendetta, vengeance, that kind of coming back and striking back from a blow that's been aimed at you. This is important because vendetta is an important function of the poem itself. We will find this thematic of vendetta concluded in cantos ahead of us, but I've been warning you all along that the word vendetta is coming up more and more as the poem progresses, and here we have it again. We should think here that this must be a divine vendetta, because they're here paired up under the wrath they incurred. Well, whose wrath? Although Virgil doesn't say it, it must be God's wrath. And because we had this story of Eteocles and his brother in that funeral pyre burning up, the brothers who hated each other, he and Polynices, we should kind of think here probably that Ulysses and Diomedes are stuck here because they have grown to hate each other despite being co-conspirators that brought about the fall of Troy. Let's talk about that because that's where the passage goes. Virgil goes on, down inside that flame, they bewail the ploy of the horse. There it is. There's the wooden horse. You know the story of the horse that is brought into Troy and brings about his downfall. In case you don't, I'm going to tell it to you in just a minute, but let's just finish reading the passage. The ploy of the horse that opened the gates from which issued the seed of the noble Romans. And it is seed in the Florentine. So there is a birthing metaphor here or an insemination, I shouldn't say birthing, an insemination metaphor that's going on here. And there's a reason for that. So let's talk it through. This is the first moment of their guilt. The first kind of 
what they're first guilty of is that horse, the Trojan horse that comes inside the gate. So the story goes that Sinon is left behind by Ulysses as a trick. Sinon the Greek is left behind. He claims to have been marked for human sacrifice by Ulysses or sacrifice of some kind. He's now inside Troy and he, he, he gives the big lie that, oh, you know, I've escaped those horrible Greeks who were going to sacrifice me. He claims when the horse appears that the horse is a peace offering because the Greeks are being lambasted by Athena. We'll talk about why this is in a minute. And so they're offering this horse as kind of a peace offering. Sinon also claims that Calchas has prophesied that the Trojans will accept a horse of some kind and therefore bring the war right to the Greeks and the implication is defeat them. Sinon is, of course, lying all the way through this. He's gained the trust of the Trojans. They enlarge the gates of Troy to bring the horse inside and therefore we have this kind of opened the gates that that is not just opened the gates to let the horse in but kind of widened the gates themselves which they do in the story repeatedly in Virgil's account with Ulysses the hollow belly of the horse is described as a pregnant womb and thus inside of it you know are all the Greeks who have now gotten inside the city itself and therefore this insemination metaphor because in Virgil's telling of it of course the Trojans are ultimately the Romans so although the horse got inside the gates and although the Greeks at first were triumphant over the Trojans Some of those Trojans, including Aeneas, escaped, made their way to the Italian peninsula, and founded Rome. According to Virgil, remember, the Romans are the descendants of the Trojans, and the enemy are always those wily Greeks. So this insemination metaphor works in Virgil by the pregnant horse, the hollow belly of the horse full of Greeks, but it also works out here in Dante's text, because here is ultimately from which the gates ejaculate the Trojans out into the world, and ultimately that is the founding of Rome itself. Virgil's account of the destruction of Troy uses a very specific metaphor, which actually bears in on this text. Virgil's account in the Aeneid of Troy's destruction is that it is like a gradual spread of fire. You know, when fire starts, let's say, in one part of a forest, and it kind of moves into another part and moves into another part, or let's say fire starts in the kitchen of a house, and the way it kind of moves into other pieces of the house, that movement of the fire, it's kind of gradual movement forward until it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. That's the metaphor that Virgil uses to describe the destruction of Troy. And what are these? These are tongues of fire here in this pit. So the fire is also getting referenced back to the Aeneid. This is very complicated stuff that Dante's playing with here. The poet is being very smart. And in fact, you could read this and not know any of these complications. That's part of the brilliance of Canto 26. It has a kind of ease to it, as if all of this learning is sitting behind it. How the fire grows in Troy, the pregnant belly of the horse, how Sinan comes 
kind of tricks them to get inside, the way that Sinan uses false counsel. He lies to get them to widen the gates and bring the horse inside. All of this is sitting behind this passage of so few lines, so condensed and so easy to read. And ultimately, of course, as you know, according to Virgil, the Trojans, who become the Romans, do indeed eventually subjugate the Greeks. According to Virgil, the Trojans in the end win because Roman, the Roman Empire ultimately subjugates the various Greek city-states. All of that is sitting out back behind this text. It's complicated, but again, we should just know that the first issue of their guilt is the horse that opened the gates, but from it issued the seed of the noble Romans. So this is a Felix culpa. This is a fortunate fall. This is something that they thought that they were doing that would bring about the destruction of Troy, but actually brought about the founding of the Roman Empire. Now, their second node of guilt. Caught inside, Virgil says, they lament their art. Oh, we should really focus on this word craft and art. What is the art that they practiced? We'll talk about that in a minute. By which even dead Daedemia still pours out her sorrow for Achilles. Let's stop right there and talk about that reference. This reference comes from Statius's unfinished epic, the Achilliad. Achilles, the story of Achilles, the Achilliad. Here's the story. Let me give you all the background. Achilles' mother is the sea nymph Thetis. Achilles' mother knows through a visionary prophecy that her son, Achilles, will die at Troy. In order to try to prevent that, she secrets him away to hide him so that he doesn't eventually end up dead in Troy. It doesn't work out, as you well know. And she also dresses him in girls' clothes. So she hides him there in a Shakespearean drama out of As You Like It, except reversed, I guess, not in boys' clothes, but in girls' clothes. She he secrets him there in girls' clothes on the island so that he'll be safe. There, of course, he does what boys do. <laughs> he seduces the king's daughter. Listen, all boys don't do this, but he does. He seduces the king's daughter, and the king's daughter is this Maya. He seduces her. He, in fact, impregnates her, even though he's dressed up like a girl. He impregnates her all behind the scenes. Now, move away from the island where that's going on. Calchas, the prophet, sees a vision of Achilles there on the island. And so Calchas sends Ulysses and Diomedes to get him. They arrive on the island. They pretend to be merchants. Uh, they pretend, you know, just to be in the trade business, as it always goes in these stories. And they are invited ultimately to the king's dinner. There they give all oh, this big story about the glories of war, the glories that war can bring to a man. They did, In other words, what they're doing is they're trying to make Achilles step out of character, step out of his girl's clothes, and they succeed in it. They 
ultimately the next day give him a sword and a shield, a trumpet sounds. He's so inflamed by what they've said the night before about the glories of war that he throws off his girl's clothes. He presents himself as Achilles. He comes into his full bearing as the hero that he is. The king accepts him. He marries Daedemaya. At that point, she actually has her child. He he goes off to war and he never sees her again. And she dies of grief back on the island. That's the full story. But notice in all that I just told you from Statius's Achilliad, notice two things. Ulysses and Diomedes are very good about getting people to drop their defenses. Those defenses that they had on this island to keep away people who might cause them trouble are breached by Ulysses and Diomedes, and they're very capable of getting over any way that you might say, no, I don't think so. That's one thing. And two, notice that Ulysses' speech about the glories of war brings out the hidden fire in Achilles. It makes him burn forth, to flame out, to become Achilles. So Ulysses' rhetoric, his storytelling, is capable of bringing out the hidden fire in Achilles, which you know results in the nightmare of the Trojan War. Okay, the last line of the passage, the last thing they have to atone for. Virgil ends his introduction by saying they settle the score over the palladium they stole. The palladium is a wooden statue of Athena stolen by Ulysses and Diomedes. They sneak into Troy and they steal this wooden statue. That's the theft that is the reason that Sinon says Athena is besieging the Greeks outside and they're offering the horse as a peace offering because they've stolen this wooden statue of Athena that allegedly protects the city of Troy. Ovid in the Metamorphoses has Ulysses eventually claim that he essentially is the cause of the Greek victory over Troy. In in the 13th book of the Metamorphoses at about line 125 along in there um, and following, Ulysses essentially takes credit for every single victory in the Trojan War. You can see them piling up right here. Horses, Achilles, Palladium. You can see Dante kind of following that out. The every reason that the Greeks won that war is here. But of course, we also see the seed of the noble Romans coming out of those opened gates. So we also see the fortunate fall of all of this because for Dante, the coming of the Romans means the coming of the church. The reason Dante is so connected to Aeneas and Virgil is because ultimately it's the myth of the founding of Rome and Dante believes there is no church without Rome, which then brings into even further clarity his despair at the notion that Rome has in his own day decamped to Avignon. Given that Dante thinks that the founding of the Roman Empire is a divinely sanctioned device to get the established church in the West, no, 
for Dante all across the world, but in the West, there there is other, there are other churches sitting over there in Byzantium. But okay, for Dante, the Roman Empire is the divinely motivated fulcrum on which the church turns. Yes, there's a fortunate fall here, and yet there is the guilt of Ulysses and Diomedes for what they've done, horses, Achilles, Palladium. But there's more to this story. Let me get there. Yes, these two are clearly condemned right here, and we're told why they're in hell. In no uncertain terms, kind of. The terms of this game are going to be changed on us throughout this canto, but right now we seem to know at least Virgil's perspective on why they're here. We're going to find out that Virgil's perspective may not be correct. And let me just say, it's not the only one. Dante knows other traditions about Ulysses. For example, Dante knows Horace. And in the Ars Poetica, Horace claims that Ulysses, quote, saw the wide world, its ways, and all its cities. Horace praises Ulysses as someone who traveled the far world to know the full extent of the world. Dante knows that praise of Ulysses from from Horace. And furthermore, Dante knows the praise of Ulysses from Cicero. In the De Finibus, Cicero celebrates the mind's innate love of learning, the mind's questing after greater knowledge, and Cicero uses Ulysses as his example. This, in Cicero, is an extremely positive human and stoic virtue, for which Ulysses is the exemplar. Dante knows these sources. He doesn't just know Virgil, and he doesn't just know Statius. He knows more. And in fact, for many of the Stoics that Dante would know, Ulysses is an extremely positive figure. Dante is working in a complicated tradition, and it's even more complicated. One more point. Ulysses is emblematic not just for the Stoics, of a kind of exploration and learning, Ulysses was emblematic for the Neoplatonic Christian writers. Let me explain this. The Neoplatonic Christian writers were a group of writers, mm, first out of Alexandria in Egypt, but later out of all kinds of places across the West, in which a set of writers tried to, uh, what do I want to say, fuse Plato with Christianity and discover a way in which they could make Platonic thought part of the Christian tradition. They weren't terribly successful at that. Let me just say it's very hard to, to uh, what do I want to say, to fuse Plato and Christianity in any meaningful way. But man, that didn't stop centuries of scholars from trying to do it. And it's, it's of course, understandable. Given the weight of Plato's writings, given what Plato did and accomplished, of course, these scholars would want to figure out a way to take this high classical philosopher and fuse him, make him acceptable inside of a Christian context. And one of the ways they did that is by using Ulysses. For the Neoplatonic writers, Ulysses was the emblem of the soul. It proceeds from God. It goes out into the world. It is tainted by the world. 
it is cleansed, and then it returns to God. This is the story of Ulysses returning to Penelope. He leaves Ithaca. He voyages out into the world. He is tainted by the world. He takes the voyage, the circular voyage, back home. He finds his way through a series of trials that brings him back to his more authentic self, and he returns home to Penelope cleansed of his guilt. The Neoplatonic writers used Ulysses over and over again. This idea is first advanced, I think first advanced, by John Frechero in his book, Dante, the Poetics of Conversion. But now it's a pretty accepted understanding, once Frechero brings it forward, that Hey, Dante also knows these Neoplatonic writers who use Ulysses' journey as an emblem of the soul's journey. Nothing in the passage that I read for you today has anything about Horace or Cicero or the Neoplatonic Christian writers in it. But these are traditions that Dante also knows. So by bringing up Ulysses, a dominant figure in medieval folklore, in medieval tales, a dominant figure across a learned landscape of Dante's day, Dante is bringing up a host of problems. We're going to get to that host of problems, but let me just read you lines 49 through 63 again from this passage. We've had a long podcast episode trying to get you to see the complexities behind this, but now what I'd like to do is just read it again to you and let you hear the simplicity of it. I'm not going to do Virgil's voice. I'm not going to do any sound effects. This is just a straightforward reading of my translation of the passage, Canto 26, lines 49 through 63. My master, I replied, hearing you say that makes me more certain, but I'd already considered that such was the case. So I already wanted to ask you, who's in that fire that arrives so split at the top? So much so that it seems to be rising from the fire where Eteocles and his brother were laid down. He replied to me, there inside are tormented Ulysses and Diomedes. They're paired up in the vendetta that results from the wrath they incurred. Down inside that flame, they bewail the ploy of the horse that opened the gates from which issued the seed of the noble Romans. Caught inside, they lament their art by which, even dead, Daedemia still pours out her sorrow for Achilles. They also settle the score over the palladium they stole. Well, we got to him. We got to Ulysses. He's on the scene. We're going to have to have a conversation between Virgil and Dante about who's actually going to deal with this figure before Ulysses himself steps out onto the scene. So subscribe to this podcast, rate it, like it, (laughs) do that stuff that you can do for me. This is my passion project. I am unsupported. No GoFundMe pages. No way to Patreon me. There's, there's no way to support this except to do those kind of things to help the podcast along. That would be terrific. I'm doing this for the sheer love of it. And I hope you can tell I love this stuff. Where else do you get to talk about Statius and Ovid and Horace and Cicero in the same moment and Neoplatonic Christian writers? Where else can you do all this in one moment? I, I don't know. But we're doing it here. So I hope you enjoy the journey with me and come on, because we are about to encounter the wildness that is Ulysses. I'm Mark Scarborough. I'll see you next time. Mm